0: So last week we finished 15 and 15 compared the people in Jerusalem to a worthless vine. Wasn't good for anything except fuel for a fire. That comes on the heels of him going after false prophets and witches. This time on 16 he's going to talk to the city of Jerusalem itself. One of the things that people wonder about is who the bride of Christ is and as I read Revelation the bride of Christ is Jerusalem Jerusalem comes down adorned like a bride and on and on and on which isn't to say that everybody doesn't get invited to the wedding feast and here he's talking to Jerusalem in terms of you are a faithless bride Let's go ahead and start. And for some reason, I've always liked this passage of Scripture, even though it gets kind of grim. Beautiful poetry. So Ezekiel 16, again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin, your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. So obviously the image there goes back to pagan, birth control practices. That was literally what they did to unwanted children. They would take them out and abandon them in a field or on a hillside and that would be the end of them. And today we don't let them get out of the womb. Back then they didn't have our advanced civilization with all of our surgical tricks. So when an unwanted child was born That was what was done with it. And probably more often girls than boys. So the image here is one that would have been familiar to everybody in that part of the world at that time. You were basically an unwanted child. So verse 6, And then I passed by and saw you wallowing in your blood. And I said to you in your blood, Live! I said to you in your blood live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown yet you were naked and bare. Obviously in your blood we're talking about the blood of birth in the sense her cord was not cut. She was not cleaned up. She was not rubbed with salt. Apparently rubbing with salt is something that is still done in many parts of the world. A newborn will get rubbed down with salt. Apparently it does the skin good. I, I saw that. I looked it up, and apparently it is something that is still done in some parts of the world. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, certainly it might be, you know. Uh, But anyway, again, it's not um, anything that would have been strange or unusual to the people reading this at the time it was written. In verse 7, it says, I made you flourish like a plant in a field. Update that, you grew like a weed, which is to say, growing healthy and all that kind of thing. And then, of course, she hits puberty, breasts and hair, and verse 8 When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. In other words, you were now of a marriageable age. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. The idea there of putting the corner of his garment over her, you should think Ruth. In the Book of Ruth, what she does, of course, is she comes down to the threshing floor as Boaz is asleep, and she crawls at his feet under the corner of his garment and asks him to spread his garment over her. This is all marriage protection kind of metaphor. One of the things about marriage in the Hebrew culture Jewish religion, however you want to describe it, marriages are made by the man. The thing that makes a marriage is when the man says, and the woman agrees, of course, I consecrate you to myself. You all know the difference between a vow and an oath, right? A vow and an oath are two different things. You can tell they're spelled differently, and they mean very different things. An oath is a promise to perform, So if I say, I will meet you for lunch next Thursday, I have, in a sense, taken an oath. I have promised to do something. A vow changes the halakhic status of something. The most common one that everybody knows is the Nazirite vow. So when you take a Nazirite vow, what happens is everything associated with a grape becomes forbidden to you. While you're under a Nazarite vow, eating raisins, drinking wine, any of that kind of stuff, would be in the same status as eating pork. It is forbidden for you. A marriage vow, therefore, changes the status of a woman. When a marriage vow is made, a woman is consecrated to her husband and becomes forbidden to all other men. That's why it's called a marriage vow. Now, there are also oaths that are taken as part of that process. There's a ketubah, which is a contract, and there's a bunch of promises made, but the central part of the marriage is a vow, which is to say the status of this woman is now changed. She is consecrated to her husband. She is no longer on the market. She is no longer available to other men. So her status has changed. That's the reason it's a vow and not an oath. Similarly, in Judaism, since a man makes the vow, only a man can grant a divorce. One of the problems that they have in Judaism is what's called an aguna, which literally means anchored. So if a man puts a woman away or a man dies and his body is not found, and a lot of that happened in the Holocaust, in 9-11, another example, There is no proof that the man is dead. She is anchored. She cannot marry somebody else because it is possible that her husband might still be alive. One of the reasons for the very heavy record search and stuff after the Holocaust was to try and resolve the status of women whose husbands were presumed to have been killed, but there was no proof. Now, the other thing about that, of course, is when a marriage breaks up, one of the things that happens is emotions typically run high, and very often, in anger, the man may refuse to grant a divorce. In other words, he puts her away, you are no longer in my house, but I am not freeing you. And that becomes a whole big snarl. In fact, in Israel, they'll put men in jail for refusing to issue a get. And you'll sit in jail until you change your mind. And there's cases of guys who have been in jail for 10, 15 years because they're so angry. And, you know, three hot meals a day and she can't get married again. Anyway, all of that is in play here where God says... I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And again, in traditional Judaism, what would happen is there would be negotiations between the families and so forth. And one of the things that would happen would be then a contract would be written up so that this is what the man agrees to provide for the woman in the marriage. That's an oath. The vow is she is consecrated to me only, and she is no longer available to anybody else. She is forbidden to everybody but me. And since in the biblical economy, it's possible to have more than one wife, you would make vows in all those cases. One of the things that happens in Judaism If you go back to the Torah, probably Exodus. I don't remember right off the top of my head. I haven't looked at it in a while. The idea of female slavery. Male slaves, Hebrew slaves, go out at the end of the seventh year. The deal with a father giving his daughter as a slave is a poor man who cannot provide for his daughter will make her a slave to a rich house with the assumption and the understanding that his daughter is going to be married to one of the men in the house. And if that doesn't happen, she is then allowed to go free. In other words, he can't sell her on or anything like that. And what that does is it provides social mixing. And the law is if you get such a young woman and you take her to your wife and you then later on take another wife from a better family. What is forbidden then is to treat your first poor wife any differently than you treat your second wife of higher status. It is not permitted to in any way diminish her marital rights Her food, her clothing, anything like that. You have to continue to treat her equally to your second wife of higher status. So the idea here is not female slavery per se. It's a way of mixing up and down the social class. Verse 9. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. So having decided to take her as a wife, he gives her everything that God is capable of giving a person. And again, this is the city of Jerusalem we're talking about. It's a metaphor of a young woman. But the point is, going back to my example of having two wives, where one comes from a poor family and has simply been sold into your family with the hope of elevating her status, whereas the other one comes from a very privileged family. So what God has done is he has taken this abandoned young woman. Remember, she is out in the field having been abandoned, left to die. He has taken her in. So she is the ultimate in the low-status bride. She is, in fact, so low-born that even her father didn't want her and left her out in the field. And so what God does when he betroths her to himself and marries her is he does for her everything that it is possible for a man to do for a woman. He stints on nothing. Verse 15 but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore. Notice what's happened here. The key phrase here is you trusted in your beauty. The idea here is God set her up, did everything that he could possibly do to make her attractive, and then she became full of pride because of her beauty and said, I'm going to go off and have fun with the younger guys, and my sugar daddy will never know. I've got this old fool sugar daddy who keeps giving me stuff, but man, there's this really cool Jamaican pool boy over there that looks really good to Speedo, and I'm going to go play with him for a while. You understand the dynamic here. That's what God is saying. I set you up, and then you treated me like I was sort of an old sugar daddy, and a fool. And again, the key there is trusted in your beauty. You became prideful. And in your pride, you then thought that you would be able to do whatever you wanted to do, and I, God, would not do anything about it. So, verse 15 again But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like was never seen, nor ever shall be. But what she did here, and this will be repeated a couple of times different ways, is she took the wealth that God gave her and built shrines to other gods. In God's perspective, since God is God, The idea, then, of using God's bounty to worship other gods becomes to him playing the whore. Down to verse 17. So you took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, set my oil on my incense before them, Also, my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. So it was, declares the Lord God. The idea here is she is using all of the abundance and the luxury that God gave her to turn around and go after other gods. Verse 20. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and those you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your hoarding so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? So the idea here is not only did you go chasing after other gods using the abundance that I gave you to worship those other gods, But you engaged in human sacrifice to those other gods using my children, God's children. It's bad enough that you went out and used my stuff to build shrines and all that kind of stuff. That's bad enough. But then you took the children that you bore to me and you sacrificed them. So human sacrifice on top of simple idolatry. 22. And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. This whole thing starts back in verse 15 where it says you trusted in your beauty. I elevated you way up and you became prideful. And then we have this list of things that she did. And then at the end is you don't remember where you came from. Parenthesis, You don't remember how you got to be beautiful. Verse 23. After all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. So what it's saying here is not only did you go after other gods, you also built temples and shrines to these other gods on every street and in every square. You all remember, of course, Paul, you know, where he's in Athens and he finds a shrine to an unknown god. That's by no means the only shrine in Athens. Athens is got shrines to all sorts of gods. And the business of the shrine to the unknown God is, we got all the gods we know about, but there's a possibility we may have missed one we don't know, so we got this shrine to one just to cover all the bases. That's what the shrine to the unknown God is. So what Jerusalem is doing here is they are bedecking themselves with shrines to every God that is known to man. And they're all being set up in Jerusalem. Now, this is going to shift a little bit. And the way I would describe this is we started off back in verse 15, where she was young and beautiful and in her prime, and she decided to go off and experiment with others. As we go down, what we have is age setting in. She's no longer young and beautiful and in her prime. But she's still interested in fooling around. So what she's going to wind up doing is paying others to sleep with her. You see the progression that we've got there? So as you read this, keep that progression in mind because it's going to turn around and she's going to wind up paying other gods to come to her. Twenty-six. You played also the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. A couple of things here. Thing one is, of course, the Egyptians were polytheists, idolaters. And the other part of this that we're talking about is international alliances. They started to make military alliances with the people around them instead of depending on God to defend them. Because in playing the whore, God had withdrawn his hand of protection. So what they did in order to replace the hand of God is rather than changing and going back to proper behavior, They started to try and make alliances with surrounding nations for their protection. The other one is he delivered them into the hand of the Philistines. And the Philistines were ashamed of their lewd behavior. The Philistines were also idolaters, one idol. Our idol, our god, our city god is whoever it is, Dagon, whatever it is. It's sort of like the Muslims. The Muslims do not worship the same God we do, as near as I can tell, yet they are faithful to that one God. So, what the Philistines are doing is seeing Jerusalem wow, not only are you pagans, but you're not even faithful to one God. And you're doing abominable stuff that we wouldn't even do. That's the sense of that sentence. In verse 27, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion. So what he did is he started withdrawing all of this stuff that he had given them. And by the way, this whole process that we're talking about started under Solomon. Before David, Jerusalem was not the capital of Israel. The capital of Israel was in Shechem. That's where the tabernacle was. So when David became king, remember David's original throne was in Hebron, which is sort of the center of Judah. So David then goes up and conquers Jerusalem, and he conquers Jerusalem with his own mighty men. So that's why it's called the City of David. David didn't grab the whole nation, bring them in, lay siege to Jerusalem, and take it down. David took it with his own crew. And David then puts... The seat of government there, and the reason the seat of government is in Jerusalem, is, and you've all been through this, I'll do very quickly, the way Israel is laid out, you have a central ridge that goes north and south. There's a saddle across the ridge north of Jerusalem, it's called the Saddle of Benjamin. And Benjamin was put between Judah and Ephraim, because Judah and Ephraim are the two big tribes. Whoever controls that saddle basically controls the land. So what God did is he separated Judah and Ephraim so there wouldn't be civil war and put Benjamin in the middle. Well, for David to move north and put his capital at, you know, somewhere like Bethel, since David is from Judah would have been sort of regarded as aggressive by Ephraim. So what happens is Jerusalem is on the very southern edge of the saddle of Benjamin, which is as far north as David dared put his capital in order to get up there in the center, but not to cause a civil war. The point is, Jerusalem is not a big deal until David. Before David, Jerusalem was a Jebusite city, one of the places that they failed to conquer when they took the land. So David then makes it the capital. David is the one who sets Jerusalem up for all of this stuff that God does for it. Solomon is then the one who starts this process of whoredom with all of his wives. And Solomon is the one that builds shrines to all these gods. Every one of his wives wants her own shrine. So he built shrines and high places all over the place. So what we're talking about is what started under Solomon and went downhill from there. Verse 28. You played the whore also with the Assyrians, because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea. Even with this, you were not satisfied. What I think we're talking about here is, of course, trade relationships, but we're also talking about God pulling his hand back, and they need military alliances. So that's also part of what's going on. Third, how lovesick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment where no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different this is what I was talking about earlier. When she's young and beautiful and desirable and so forth, she's out there fooling around. And as she begins to look like a, shall we say, a prostitute with lots of mileage, she ceases to command money and instead has to pay her lovers. Verse 35. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and I will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. So the idea here is shame as we age we use clothing as camouflage and what's being said here is i'm going to take your camouflage away and everybody's going to look upon you and mock you and laugh at you etc verse 38 and i will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy and I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. The idea here is what they're doing is they're going after what remains of the glory that she once had, and they're going to take even that. Verse 40. They shall bring up a crowd against you, And they shall stone you and cut you into pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your house and execute judgment upon you in the sight of many women. All right, stop there for a minute. If you go back to the Torah, what's the penalty for an adulterous wife? Stoning. Except what? There's an exception. The other case is if it's the wife or the daughter of a priest. And then the penalty is burning. And so notice they're going to stone you, cut you into pieces with their swords, and they shall burn your houses and execute judgment upon you in the sight of many women. The idea here is sort of all-encompassing. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. Two things. One is she's a whore taking payment, or two, she is paying gigolos to come to her once she has ceased to be attractive. Verse 42. So I will satisfy my wrath on you and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry because you have not remembered the days of your youth but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? So this is measure for measure. 44. Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother, who loathed your husband and her children, and you are the sister of your sisters, who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father an Amorite, remember Jerusalem was not originally a Hebrew city. And your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all their ways. So at this point, Samaria has been sanded off which is the northern kingdom. And of course, Sodom got flattened and burned back in Genesis. So both of these cities have been destroyed. 48. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. So the idea that Sodom was removed for unauthorized use of the reproductive organs is not correct. They were removed because of the way they treated strangers. Verse 51. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they And have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. In other words, you have become so bad that I have reconsidered what I have done to Sodom and Samaria. It's sort of like Chuck Missler says, if God doesn't judge the United States, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of a statement. You guys are so bad that I'm going to have to reconsider Sodom and Samaria. So 52 again. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they. They are more on the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. 53. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. And I will restore your own fortunes in their midst. So Sodom is going to be restored. Samaria is going to be restored. Jerusalem is going to be restored. Because remember, this prophecy is being given in the interval between Nebuchadnezzar's first and second invasion. The first invasion he took... Daniel and a bunch of folks back to Babylon left Zedekiah as king in his place, a vassal king. When Zedekiah rebels on Nebuchadnezzar's second trip, which happens after this particular part of the book, then is when Jerusalem is going to be sanded off flat and is going to be burned. This particular chunk of scripture is in between those two things so 53 again i will restore their fortunes both the fortunes of sodom and her daughters and the fortune of samaria and her daughters and i will restore your own fortunes in their midst that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done becoming a consolation to them i'm going to restore all three of you but you're not going to be able to forget what you did and the fact that you were so bad is going to make your sisters feel a little bit better about what they did. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride? For your wickedness was uncovered. Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her, and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness, and your abomination declares the Lord. And that, by the way, should make everybody go, whoa, because what he's saying is Sodom was a byword in Jerusalem. They regarded Sodom much the way Christianity today in the United States regards Sodom. A sodomite is not a good term. What's happened now is we are up to our hips in them because we have gone away from our understanding. And so, what God is saying here through the prophet is Sodom was a byword, and you, because of your behavior, has basically become worse than them. Verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all that you have done declares the Lord God. And we're talking about the New covenant there. That's the New covenant. and who is atoning for her? God is atoning for her. When I atone for you, atonement means covering. I will cover your sins. So, what we're talking about here is New Covenant territory. Under the New Covenant, Jerusalem will be reestablished, as will Sodom and Samaria, and Sodom and Samaria will be given as daughters to Jerusalem, which is to say, Jerusalem will still be the capital, and Sodom and Samaria will be cities in the greater Israel. <laughs>